Today's first scripture reading is Psalm 130, which is available on the first page of your bulletin. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Today's second scripture reading is from Exodus 34, verses 1 to 9, which likewise is available in your bullets. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished and punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. This, too, is the word of the Lord. And our third and final scripture text comes from chapter 4 of the prophecy of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. If you're just joining us in this series, what's happened is the Lord has called this prophet Jonah to go to a wicked city, Nineveh, to call for uh, its repentance, to warn of its destruction. He flees and goes aboard a ship. The ship is um, threatened by a storm that seems to be God chasing him. Jonah is thrown overboard. Jonah is swallowed by a great fish. Jonah stays in the belly of the great fish for three days Finally, Jonah repents, and the fish spits him up. The Lord calls him again to Nineveh to preach, and this time he goes, and wouldn't you know it, it's a great success. The whole city repents. Uh, The king and the peasants and the cattle even are lying in sackcloth and ashes. It's a wonderful success, a miracle of God's mercy. Jonah chapter 4 however, goes like this. But to Jonah, 
This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Verse 3, now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you have ever been strangely upset when everybody expected you to be happy. Have you ever had one of those experiences? And everyone wonders, what's the deal with Andy? What's going on inside of him? Last week we saw how the beginning of chapter 1 of this four-chapter prophecy and the beginning of chapter 3 are kind of in parallel with one another, but in some ways opposite, as I just explained in our little preface there. Chapter 1, God calls, Jonah runs away. Chapter 3, God calls, and Jonah answers and obeys. So chapters 1 and 3 in parallel. This week, we're going to go to chapters 2 and 4 and see how they are in parallel, but opposite. We've got Jonah in both of these chapters talking to the Lord. But the same Jonah who repented and praised God for his mercy to him in chapter 2, is now scolding God for that same mercy in chapter 4. It's really kind of bizarre, isn't it? Wouldn't this have been a perfect book if it had ended at the end of chapter 3? Jonah would be known as a miracle prophet, right? He experiences personal repentance. He calls a great city to repentance. All of them repent. The Lord is honored and praised, and the nations rejoice. And he becomes a perfect archetype of Jesus, the greater Jonah. But unfortunately, when this wicked city responds to his preaching, instead of calling him Saint Jonah, the great prophet, Jonah has suddenly gotten really, really sour, hasn't he? What in the world is he so sour about? And that's what we'll explore in the beginning here. There's two things happening that he is sour about. The first is that Nineveh repented, and the second is that God relented. Nineveh repented, and God relented. So first, Nineveh repents. Back in chapter 1, we had another episode where pagan people repented. Pagan sailors that time. But actually, Jonah didn't get to see most of that repentance happen. While they were offering sacrifices and making vows and pledging to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with the new God that they served, who had saved them from the shipwreck, Well, Jonah, while all that was happening, was, of course, not there. He was sinking down into the depths of the sea. He was hiding out in the belly of the great fish. But in chapter 3 and 4, 
Jonah's right there. And he has a front row seat, in fact, to the miracle of Nineveh's repentance. And bizarrely, Jonah hates his own success. Just think about what would this be like? This would sort of be like me going down to Stadelhofer Platz, Parada Platz, or someplace in the city, and I start preaching obnoxiously, and a crowd gathers, and instead of like throwing vegetables at me, chasing me out of there, they repent and they're lying down on the plaza. And there's a fountain right there, like there is in every plaza. And they start saying, what can prevent me from being baptized now that I've repented? And I just start baptizing them. I text message Pastor Sam because I need backup. And we're baptizing hundreds of people. And wouldn't you know it then, uh, they all come to the Info Cafe and they pledge to join the International Protestant Church of Zurich, right? My job security would be uh, in good shape if that happened. And I certainly wouldn't turn to the Lord and say, please kill me now, I hate my job and I hate my life. But this is what Jonah says, and it's bizarre. Literally, the Hebrew in verse 1 reads something like, it, it, this repentance, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and it burned to him. It is bad news that Nineveh turned from their sin and violence that they laid down in the dust from king to peasant to cattle and begged Israel's God for mercy. Seeing these people who were so wicked do something that was so right and so appropriate, it, it ruined this picture of Nineveh, this perfect picture that Jonah had of Nineveh as Israel's perfect enemy. You know how this works, right? Uh, maybe you've gotten caught up in partisan politics like some people in my country have. Somebody on the other side actually does something that's humane or sensible, and it's frustrating to you, right? It ruins your perfectly awful picture of the other side. Or maybe you're, you have a colleague or a boss or a classmate or a competitor, and this person has opposed you. But all of a sudden, they say something that's kind, something that's good and true and beautiful. And it's irritating to you because it ruins your picture of them as the perfect enemy. I've been making my family watch all of the hit movies that were so popular when I was coming of age. And actually, they tend to really like them. So we've kept going with it. And recently, we made them watch the romantic comedy, You've Got Mail, with Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. I recommend it to all of you. And this dynamic is exactly what drives Meg Ryan so, up, so mad in this film. She is a small bookshop owner. But then there is this big, bad, Assyrian kind of big box book retailer that moves in around the block, Tom Hanks. And they naturally are opposed to one another, and especially Meg Ryan is opposed to him because he's coming to gobble up her little historic bookshop in the neighborhood. But one day she's at home with a cold, and Tom Hanks shows up at her house and rings the doorbell, and she says, 
really, I'm just too sick. And he comes up anyway, and he brings her flowers, and he makes her chicken noodle soup, and it rips to shreds this simple, ugly picture that she had drawn of him. It messes with her. Being against people who do bad things would be so much easier for us, right? If they always and only did bad things. But now imagine you're out of the romantic comedy now and you're in Jonah's actual shoes. Imagine that your enemy is not your boss or your competitor, but it's Jonah's enemy. What some scholars have plainly called a terrorist state a militaristic empire who constantly threatens your tiny little country. This corrupt city that is in and of itself oppressive and violent. And then suddenly this hated place and this hated people respond with radical repentance. Your picture of them as the ideal enemy, the enemy that helps you feel justified in hating them, suddenly becomes devoutly religious, at least superficially, nonviolent for a time, and just. This experience is either, either going to do, it's going to do one of two things. It's going to overthrow your hatred, or it's going to overthrow you. And in our case, it overthrows Jonah. Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah's little five-word in Hebrew sermon went... But now it's Jonah who ends up overthrown. Not thrown over the side of the boat again to sink in the depths of the sea, but this time thrown into the depths of despair and depression and anger and rage. I wonder if there's somebody in your life that you dislike so much that it actually makes you angry when they do something that's good and true and beautiful. I wonder if there's a people group that you've been trained to hate, that you've never been able to praise for doing something good and true and beautiful. And so the question rings down from the centuries to us, right? Is it right for you to be angry? Would you rather be overthrown than to allow allow your hatred of this person or these people, to be overthrown instead. Friends, if you or if we depend on the pure badness of someone else in order to feel good about ourselves, well, then we are nothing but Jonah on his worst day. And our hatred must be overthrown, or else we, like Jonah, will be overthrown. But that's just Nineveh's repentance. And Jonah's not just bitterly angry that the Ninevites have repented. He's, I think, even more angry that God has relented. My old pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, loved to say about God's grace and God's power. He said this, God is gracious in his sovereignty, and he is sovereign in his grace. And I think that it is precisely this that makes Jonah overthrown with anger for the second time in this book. He hates the Ninevites, and he's mad that they've repented. 
But ultimately, what does he know? He knows that his God is completely in charge of all the nations. That Yahweh, his God, the God of Israel, owns the cattle on a thousand hills, including the now-repentant cows on the hillsides of Assyria. Jonah had confessed in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. Sovereignty and grace together, right? But now Jonah, Jonah thinks that God is actually reckless and irresponsible in his sovereign grace. He rules Assyria, it seems to Jonah, not just with truth, but with truth and grace. He sees God speaking truth to power, but he also hears God speaking mercy to power. You see, Jonah wants God to be more just and less merciful, at least when it comes to Assyria. But mercy and justice are not like Republicans and Democrats. They're not like yin and yang. They're not ranked sort of like one attribute of God over the other. God isn't sort of partly merciful and partly just. God is merciful and God is just. And that's how he revealed himself way back in the beginning of our Bibles, which Philip read for us, Exodus 34, which Jonah is at least partially quoting here now. These words in Exodus about God's unfailing love and mercy, about his readiness also to hold people accountable. These very words get confessed again and again throughout the biblical record. You have almost the same words in one way or another in Nehemiah 9, in Psalm 86, 103, and 145, in the prophecy of Joel chapter 2, and on into the New Testament. Over and over again, God is merciful and just. This is our God. But God's mercy and God's justice have become, haven't they, a problem for Jonah. And I think if we're honest, we can understand why. I would say that Jonah isn't completely wrong here. Jonah is wrong to want mercy for himself and not for the Ninevites. Jonah is wrong to want justice for the Ninevites, but not justice for himself. Jonah is wrong, Jonah is wrong to want to die every time God shows compassions, compassion to one of his enemies. But Jonah is not wrong to ask, can God really be just and show mercy at the same time? Jonah isn't wrong to ask, is God really good all the time? And anybody that's thought about the power of a good God and his power over a world full of wickedness, then you know how Jonah feels. If God is all good, doesn't he want, therefore, to end all evil and to hold evildoers accountable? On the other hand, if God is all-powerful, isn't he able to do all of this, to end evil and hold them accountable and do it now? Why won't he do it right now? If he's really all good and all-powerful, put an end to evil and do it now. 
There's a similar confrontation between the Lord and a wicked city in the book of Genesis. You'll remember Abraham, who has a very different conversation with God about the destruction or the salvation of the city of Sodom. And in that case, Abraham is pleading with the Lord, remember? He says, Lord, before you destroy this wicked city, would you, would you relent for the sake of 50 or 45, maybe 40? What about 30? What if it was just 20 or 10 good and righteous people in the city? And the Lord said, if you could find me 10 righteous people, I would relent and not destroy it. But the Lord, in that case, doesn't find 10 just people in Sodom. And he doesn't send Abraham to preach a sermon to them and said, his justice is shown upon that city. In Sodom, he seems to be just, but not merciful. And in Nineveh, he seems to be merciful, but Jonah is quick to point out, he seems not to be just. And this is the tension that exists throughout the entire Old Testament scriptures. Nineveh repents, God relents, but if we are going to have this tension resolved, it can only be resolved, I believe, when we see also that Jesus is sent. There's a lovely old hymn text in a compilation of William Gadsby's hymns. Many moons ago, Ellie and I wrote some music for it. Maybe we'll share it with you sometime. But the first stanza goes like this. Truth and mercy meet together. Righteousness and peace embrace. Each perfection of Jehovah meets and shines in Jesus' face. Hallelujah, hear the Father, can be just and saved by grace. And in Jesus Christ alone, God is just, even while he is the justifier of people who are unjust, like us. Romans chapter 3. Jonah wants Nineveh to be shown all the justice and for himself to be shown all of the mercy. But in the fullness of time, Jesus is instead shown all of the justice while we are shown all of the mercy. In Jesus Christ, God upholds his perfect justice and he shows his perfect mercy at the very same moment for us to be made just and for God to remain just, well, Jesus dies for us, and he had to. But thanks be to God, Jesus, who loved us, was also so glad to die for us, to justify us, even though we were unjust. Jonah sees God's grace towards Nineveh, and it makes him want to die with anger. But Jesus sees us dead in our sins and trespasses. And it makes him want to show grace upon grace. To die for us that we might live. Well, Jonah is thrown over once again in chapter 4. But really he's throwing himself overboard in his rage, isn't he? 
But the thing you have to see here is this knucklehead idiot prophet who can't seem to get it right. He still finds God diving into the depths to go and seek out his heart, to meet him there in the deep, dark dark depths of his heart, to swallow up his anger there, to change him in those deepest places, the places where the weeds of his rebellion and hatred are still wrapped around him, choking him as he drowns in confusion and in anger and in hatred. Jonah was ready to celebrate and to write poetry about God's grace and his salvation to Israel in chapter 2, even to Israelites like him who were disobedient. But now in chapter 4, Jonah doesn't want to hear anything about God's salvation through Israel to the nations. Jonah loves reading Genesis as long as God says to Abraham, I will bless you and I will bless those that bless you and I'll curse those that curse you. But if Jonah could, he would take Genesis and he would rip right out the part where he says, and by blessing you, I'm going to bless all the nations on the earth through you. And so Jonah once again rejects God's missionary call on his life, on the life of Israel. And he once again rejects that God has redeemed Israel for the sake of the nations and not for the sake of Israel alone. And so it's self-righteousness, isn't it? On both a personal and on a national and an ethnic and a religious level. The social psychologist Jonathan Haidt says at the conclusion of all of his research on this matter, self-righteousness is the normal human condition. And Jonah shows us that our self-righteousness runs deep, that we will never be loyal to God's mission of justice and mercy for the nations until we first realize that in the darkest depths of our hearts, God has been patiently but relentlessly pursuing us with an absolutely undeserved mercy. That God has declared us just in Jesus, the only really just one, and that God is teaching us by grace to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our gracious God for the sake of our neighbors. Friends, I think the message of Jonah is that God will have a people for his mission of truth and grace to the nations. He will. But the question is, do we want to be that people? If we're going to be a part of that people, on mission with God, with truth and grace to the nations, then our inner Jonah needs to be overthrown. And the reign of Jesus needs to come home once again in the depths of our hearts. May it be so. For God's glory, for our peace, and for the good of the nations to whom we bear witness. Father, we pray that the words that I've spoken, the meditations of each of our hearts together, would be acceptable in your sight, and that you would prove once again to be our rock and our redeemer. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.